It is time for Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE. I'm Heidi Holton. Dig Deep is where we pair our liberal commentator, Aaron Brown, with our conservative commentator, Chuck Marone. And, you know, I used to always say that you guys talk to each other, but I feel like now it's you listen to each other, which seems odd to hype on the radio. I know, we shout at each other. (laughs) We're doing a little different. This is our election special. Normally we don't do this like right before the election, but we're heading into the last weekend of campaigning, of election coverage, of fear and worry over what election night will be like, what the aftermath will be like. And I wonder if we can first start how things are going to be different starting Tuesday in terms of how this race, how this 2020 election is covered. Well, I think you're already seeing a lot of differences in voting patterns. I don't dare say a number because by the time people hear it, it might be different, but we're well past half of the number of votes cast in the entire 2016 presidential election have already been cast in this election. They're just waiting to be counted. And there's going to be more that come in. And and we may start the morning on election day with a significant majority of votes already cast, which means it might seem kind of light in some polling areas, I would imagine. And then again, maybe not. Maybe it'll still be busy because we, I think, will break some records nationally on on voter turnout this year. I I was going to ask you that. If you think because I've seen all these reports. It's like, oh, you know, a record number of people have voted absentee. And I'm like, yeah, because we're in a pandemic. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, a record number of people have also stay home for their work, you know, our telecommuting. That's not surprising. I do have this question about how it will affect overall voter turnout. And if there actually will be, at the end of the day, more votes cast than on a normal year. I think that's still an open question, but it wouldn't shock me, I guess. But it wouldn't shock me if it was very normal as well. I mean, we have high voter turnout rates in Minnesota. Are more people going to vote than normal? I I don't know. You think so, Aaron? I would base that on the new voter numbers in some big states and some of the swing states. Uh, Texas has turned out a lot more new voters in the early voting. And I don't mean like first-time early voters. I mean, first-time voters who are voting early. Of course, Texas is a state unlike Minnesota where you have to pre-register. You you can't register the same day of the election. Minnesota, you can. You know, a lot of first-time voters are voting early. And and I think a lot of Republican first-time voters, Trump voters, are going to come out on election day who decide kind of in the in the moment that that they want to be a part of this. So I think both sides will be able to say that they turned out new voters. I was kind of skeptical of the Republican claims. I, I remember reading somebody say that Republicans' strategy for winning Minnesota, for instance, is they had 200,000 new voters identified who were going to vote for the first time ever for President Trump. I remember thinking, ah, I don't know about that. Yeah, that um, seems off. Yeah. But I actually don't think it's insane. I, I don't know if it will happen, but I don't think it's insane. But I do think that we'll see a number of Democratic first-time voters as well. And that I don't know how it'll you know turn out in the mix. And keep in mind, we have all these other voters who vote all the time because Minnesota is a high turnout election or a state. So that, that'll be a little different. In Minnesota, I, I don't expect even anything to change in terms of how results are reported because you know the tapes that come out of the local counting machines will be off because they'll only have the the day of voters, which and we've established in many polls that 
Democrats are more likely to vote early this year and Republicans more likely to vote on election day. So a lot of those tapes are going to show a, a pretty significant lead for uh, Republican candidates. And then they'll get tempered with the courthouse. But the numbers that go down to the Secretary of State website that we all read on election night come out of the courthouse. So those will be the full numbers. And, and they'll come, I don't imagine them being dramatically delayed, maybe a little. But I, I expect in Minnesota, an election that has a clear winner is usually declared before the 10 o'clock news. And it's entirely possible that Minnesota will have a result before the 10 o'clock news. If not, it would be in the 11 to midnight territory where closer elections are called. And, and if, if we're razor close, I bet a lot of things have happened around the country that weren't expected. And so we'll know what Minnesota did pretty early. You know, we talked about this in our earlier episodes about the election with so many questions about what each individual state is going to be doing differently. We're seeing the Supreme Court get involved in a couple of cases about whether to count uh, absentee ballots received after election day, whether postmarks should count, for instance, uh, because of the problems with the mail. And there've been a kind of a mixed bag of, of decisions by the court. In many cases, that was decisions not to hear a case or a decision to overturn a, an appeals court uh, in one instance, but kind of a mixed bag. Some states like Wisconsin uh, got a pro, the Democrats got a, a good case out of Wisconsin. The Republicans got a good case out of what, what they wanted out of Pennsylvania. Those are both swing states. So eh, I don't know. We might have to wait to know who won the presidential election well beyond the 10 o'clock news in our, uh, and in fact, midnight or, or even two or three in the morning, it might be hard to say. But I, I kind of wonder if, you know, we're all just so cranked up and worried about it that we might be surprised to learn that when we wake up Wednesday morning, we have a winner and it's relatively clear. I don't know what you think about that, Chuck. That was going to be my start with this whole thing is everyone needs to just take a, a deep breath because mm -hmm. the most likely outcome, both in terms of if you if you believe the polls, but also just if you look at historically uh, high voter turnouts, the way that things seem to be trending, uh, high voter turnouts are, are not generally favorable for the incumbent party. If we look at that, the most likely outcome is that there is a definite shift and a very large kind of indisputable electoral victory by the Democrat candidate, by Joe Biden, coming out of the evening. That's contingent on a lot of things, and I'm not predicting that. But I think if you were uh, prepping for likely scenarios, the likely scenario would be you could go to bed at 11 o'clock or midnight and be pretty confident that you knew how things were going to turn out, that there wasn't going to be armed guards at the at the White House, that we weren't going to be dealing with insurrection in December and, and all these things that you know, I think have been hyped up to kind of get us to watch news and get us to focus on craziness, you know, want to put out there as scenarios. The interesting thing, and, and this is a question that I, I don't have an answer for, you know, traditionally, if we do see higher turnout, uh, and I, I, at the beginning of this cast, this, you know, is this really going to be higher turnout or not? But if we do see higher turnout, it generally is an indication that people want to see change. Like we do not want the existing party. We, we're, we're dissatisfied with this and we're showing up to voice our dissatisfaction. Because of the, the, the real populist approach of Donald Trump and where his real base is, I wonder if we can say with confidence that a high voter turnout election here will go against the incumbent. To me, it's an open question. I can see it both ways. And to me, it creates that 
ambiguity when we talk about are the polls right or not, or you know what what will actually translate into votes. People registering is obviously different than people voting, and we you know can send people door to door to get people registered, but actually getting them to fill out a ballot and send it in and or, or go show up at a polling place is a, is a different thing. Aaron, I'm, I'm, I know it's a very trendy thing on MSNBC to talk about a blue wave and and how you know it's this inevitable thing that will happen. Is it inevitable? I mean, is that is it clearly what we're looking at here? Well, I'm not in the business of inevitable anymore. How could we be? I mean, how could <laughs> I, to me that's the one thing that I found after going through 2016. How could any left leaning voter say victory is inevitable? Yeah, I, I mean, it's clear that. We can talk about polling a little bit, but I do believe that, you know, Joe Biden has a really good chance of winning the election outright, uh, either on election night or the next day, based on polling and, and registration numbers and early voting numbers that you see out of states like Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, which he's not guaranteed of winning all those states, but those are all states that if one of those gets called in the evening on election night, you know, for Biden, you know that Biden's likely to win the election. I think there's a really good chance, but I, I, I do agree that I think we can kind of throw out the notion that high turnout guarantees a Democratic victory. And I say this coming out of the Democratic Party, there's this, the old way of looking at the Democratic Party was all the, the rubes and the low information people and the and the, the, the common folk were Democrats and the aristocratic Republicans with their monocles were the elites. Those stereotypes are, are kind of all gone now. They're, the, the actual parties have a mix of elites and common folk, and there's different elements and uh, education and demographics that feed into the different coalitions for the two parties. And there's a lot of people now in the Republican Party who are marginal on whether or not they're they're going to vote in any given election, you know. But the Republicans had actually pretty good turnout, even though they lost in 2018 in a lot of the congressional races. The Republicans were not demoralized out of voting; they just got swamped by a big loss in the suburbs. And 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 if if Biden wins, and if he especially if he wins by a significant margin, it'll be exactly like 2018, where those suburban voters who always vote anyway. They're going to come out and in disproportionate numbers shift over to the Democrats because the rural numbers and the Trump coalition folks turned out pretty well, even in the loss in 2018. And of course, we know that they came out of the woodwork in 2016 and voted and was part of the reason why the polls, you know, showed up as being wrong. Though They weren't all as wrong as people make them out to be, especially on the national popular vote. But uh, state level, they missed the movement towards Trump in, in those key states. You're looking at the dynamic compared to 2016. There was a lot of movement in the last week. And I really feel like, I don't know how you feel in this last week up to the election, Chuck, but I feel like everybody's kind of locked in. I don't I don't hear a lot of people like, oh, what is it going to be, Trump or Biden? I don't know. I don't hear a lot of that. It's yeah. funny because I I actually do. Do you? Um, okay. Yeah. I, and not not as a broad phenomena, but just among yeah. people that I know. And it might just be my cohort of people yeah. who, who tend to be conservative voters who are struggling with the choices that they have presented to them. Quite frankly, from a conservative standpoint, the idea of voting for Joe Biden is less scary as the idea of voting for a blue wave. A blue wave is a very scary thing because a blue wave is like a mandate for 
all these down ballot kind of things that yeah. for conservative voters are crazy and and not things that we would ever support and things that are are you know quite anathema to what you would want. And so the question is, how do you arrest a blue wave, particularly when you really would like a change at the top? There's, there's this interesting discussion I got in this week that, that had a corollary with British politics, which I'm not an expert on, and, and I found myself listening more than contributing to the conversation. But they talked about some of the dynamics of basically setting back a movement by having it pinned to the wrong leader, the wrong front man, in a sense. And I think the interesting thing about the Trump phenomenon, the interesting thing right now about Trump voters is that there is a lot of substance there under the hood. There's a lot of things that are real grievances, that are real issues. There's a lot of legitimate things that, that are unfair in our system that need to be dealt with. The, the reason drain the swamp works as a simple statement is because there is a swamp of influence and favors. This is why the Hunter Biden thing immediately resonated with a certain group of the population and, and, and was, you know, cast out and it completely ignored by another group because the one group feels very aggrieved in this way. They don't feel they have access to power. They don't feel they have access to the ladders of success in this country. Where do those people go if Donald Trump is defeated? And I, I feel like that is an open question, not just for this election, but, you know, if Donald Trump were to win, he becomes a lame duck president, a lame duck president who was ineffectual at building governing coalitions in a first term when he had power and, and, and authority and, and he was going to run again and he could marshal people. You know, lame duck presidents well, tend to He get, had both houses of Congress for his first had, two years. Yes. There's really no, I mean, a very infinitesimally small chance that he would have both houses coming out of this election. I think that is the most outside of possibilities. And so, you know, as a lame duck president with your party having large amounts of infighting, but with this huge, you know, groundswell of, of real legitimate grievance that are melded in with other things that are distasteful to, to people who respect those grievances, but, but not necessarily buy into the whole package. What becomes of this movement? What becomes of this conversation? And, you know, I, I think it is scary for me to envision a, a blue wave, which the poster child of the blue wave is AOC and, and the Green New Deal and, and uh, Medicare for All. And we're just going to sweep in all this radical left stuff over the next six months. Uh, but I think the other scary part of me is just four more years of grievance with no outlet other than kind of the nastiest form of of social protest. It's hard to tell, right, when we're right here, right before this election, how it's different than past elections, how it's different, um, the campaigning might be different. I know I did a lot more election interviews this year. I think 37 was my count of different candidates that I talked to. Those conversations were very different than they have been in past years. We like to think of us as ourselves as Minnesota nice. Our secretary of state is holding the big foam number one that we are always going to win this. The most voter turnout. We just saw our past governors give a great, you know, PSA for what Minnesota can be. But we saw a lot of that nastiness creep up in even statewide races and smaller races where QAnon was popping up and different different things like that that I didn't really expect. So I'm curious for you guys looking in, look, watching this campaign season, how it might have 
been different? I'll answer that first by just saying, I'm going to affirm what, what you have just said, Heidi. And I feel like there's two aspects of this that are really important. The one, social media, cable news, bubble, I think gets a lot of play. And I wouldn't downplay that at all. I think it's very, I think it's very legitimate. I think it's very real. The fact that we communicate so much with each other through these, you know, narrative warping platforms. And the reason why someone like me would fear the blue wave is because, you know, social media has made the face of that blue wave a craziness and, and, and not really what I think would maybe be like the average democratic voter. The, the face of the blue wave is the most insane thing that you can put up. People attacking uh, people at restaurants and, and forcing them to do salutes and all these things. Th- this is what right-wing people are, are subjected to on social media. And it, it creates kind of this narrative bubble where you can be justified in being crazy the other way because the other side is, look, obviously very warped. I think there's another aspect of this, though, that is really important. It's one that I've felt in my work which is advocacy work and going out and meeting with people. The fact that we've been locked up, the fact that, you know, the three of us have not been in the same room together for for months, the fact that we commune in these very artificial ways, you lose a lot of the humanity of what an election actually is. An election is actually a candidate going out and meeting voters and convincing voters that they should vote for them. And there's a two-way aspect to that. Uh, Aaron has worked on campaigns. I know he knows this. Part of the two-way aspect of it is you're telling voters about you, but you're also hearing from them what is going on in their world. You're also starting to understand their problems and their framing and the things that they hear. Candidate after candidate will tell you that I learned more being on the election trail than I than I ever learned, you know, run, putting together position papers or looking at polling. Our electorate is, I'm looking for the, there's a, there's a, there's a medical term for this where you like fail to thrive or you've, you've been denied a certain form of almost nurturing. Sensory deprivation. Yeah. It's like sensory deprivation. Yeah. Our politicians now are, have gone through a cycle, an important election cycle where they've been deprived of one of their senses, which is this, this immediate visceral feedback of meeting people. And I, I do think that that combined with the social media cable news vortex, which is is just nasty, has created an even greater level of separation that you're seeing, Heidi. Yeah, I think in a traditional election, when you go out and you knock on every door, you know, my friend Tom Ansel, he's he's retired now. I, I ran his campaigns when he was in the legislature as a friend, really, from out in Balsam. But um, he would go out and knock on every door. And, and midway through his run, the state party really started pushing more of the targeted door knocking that is now very in vogue by all political organizations. Don't knock on the doors that won't vote for you or uh, don't knock on the doors where you don't, you, that's a waste of your time. You got to knock on on certain doors and get as many of them as, as you can. And when you go out in your community and you meet lots of different people, including people who won't vote for you under any circumstances, um, it, it just, it makes you, I think, a little more nimble as to the f- scope of what your community is, even if you know you're not getting all the votes. You got a pretty good idea how to get to 51%, which is what elections are, which is better than plowing ahead with a really stubborn perspective, which is really what we're getting. Because not only are the candidates not getting feedback from different kinds of points of view, but the only feedback they're getting is, is often of the most extreme variety. 
and and they're 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 rewarded. So we actually saw in a couple instances. You mentioned QAnon. There was that race on the Iron Range District Six um, B. Uh, List, David Lislagard, the DFL incumbent, uh, kind of a moderate, very moderate pro mining incumbent Democrat on the range running against a, a conservative Republican, Julia Buria. And she was the one who had the connections to the QAnon conspiracy online, who initially the state Republican Party clearly talked to her and she she disavowed. But then like two days later, when she was getting some feedback, probably from other I don't know, other people. She comes out and says, no, I should have never apologized. It was, I can do what I want. And she actually steered into the thing that was considered the extremist position. She she didn't say, oh, no, no, that's not, I'm, I'm a moderate Republican. I, I'd sure love some Democrats to vote for me too. She didn't do that. She said, nope, we're going hard in on this particular point of view. She's, you know, um, among the range Republicans running is among the least likely to to do as well as some of the others, probably because of that, in in part, and partly because Liz Lagarde has got his district pretty well sewed up, I think. But that's just an example of a, a case where a candidate was kind of pegged as an extremist. And instead of saying, no, no, I'm going to put a soft focus on this and make this look a little better. Nope, we're going hard in on this. I think it's happening uh, in a lot of DFL races too. Yeah, you lose that common touch. This is the least local election for a big election where we've got the Senate, state Senate, the state house, uh, Congress is up, everybody's up. There's a Senate race, of course, the presidential race. And, and all anybody can think about is that presidential race. And every other race has to do with you know, the U.S. senator, well, will the Senate, will it be a blue wave like Chuck's talking about? Or will will there be a, you know, a Republican Senate to hold future President Biden in check or to enforce President Trump's agenda or whatever? Uh, Congress, will, we, will they support Pelosi or not? State legislature, will they draw the districts that in a way that supports the Republicans or Democrats for president whoever in the future? All the way down to dog catcher, people are thinking this way. Locally, I don't see as many people running. There's a lot more unopposed local races, at least on the range that I've seen. And a lot of them are very sleepy. No one knows who they are. No one's paying attention. Uh, I'm a pretty well, uh, uh, you know, versed guy. I follow the news. We went to vote early. And, and before we left, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. We got a school board race, you know, and 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 I looked at it and like I I hadn't heard anything about it. Like who's running? And we looked it up. Well, there are three people running for three seats unopposed. So you know, we we checked them out to make sure they were all right. But you know, before we left, not much you can, not much you can do at that point. Yeah, but there's not much you can do. There's nobody. There's no real choice other than writing someone in or not voting if someone was unacceptable. But but that's you know. I didn't even know that that was that was happening. I should have known. I, I, you know, but a lot of people, you know, probably wouldn't know. They'd go into the ballot not knowing, a uh, ballot box not knowing exactly what was going on. So I think that lack of that local touch, and and also we, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the strategy difference here. The two parties have deployed partly because of the political way that the COVID crisis was handled. Some people think it's been overblown. Some people think that it hasn't been handled seriously enough. Then And you can pretty much track party index based on those two beliefs. So as a result, the party that I think that was overblown is out holding rallies in person, fewer masks, not as much of a big deal about masks or distancing. Um, they're actually sending people door to door. Uh, actually, the biggest investment that the Trump campaign made that we'll see if it works or not is they put way more field staff out 
than than the Democrats did. If something weird happens, if Trump does way better than expected in Minnesota, whether he just comes short or or if he actually wins the thing, they'll be saying that it, that's that in-person touch that actually made the difference. Um, whether or not that, you know, will actually work, we'll see. But but yeah, the two parties have taken these two very di- different approaches based on their different approaches to the pandemic. And that's all baked into the strategy. And I think voters like, you know, I think a Democratic voter who thinks COVID is serious, who wants it to be handled better, uh, doesn't want anybody knocking on their dang door, <laughs> you know, who's not going to answer the door. And so there's that aspect of it too. So it's certainly unusual, unlike any other. And, and anytime you get something like that, that means we might learn something. I do think that the the COVID part here is very interesting in terms of the, the two teams, right? Because you have mm-hmm. team mask and team anti-mask. Mm-hmm. And you can put out a yard sign to indicate to your neighbors what team you're on. You can, you know, post something on social media to indicate what team you're on, or you can just go to the store. Yeah. And, and, and in some ways, you know, that is a referendum on, 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 you know, what, what team you're on. It's interesting because I'm not on team mask, but I wear a mask every, everywhere I go out in public. And I, I think that this is part of the conundrum of the conservative side, the, the Trump side of this conversation. As our numbers have spiked, and today as we're recording this, we have a a record number of cases in Minnesota. We're also starting to see now in the fall, deaths start to rise again, not as dramatic as they were uh, towards the beginning because we've gotten better treatments and we know how to deal with this a little bit better, but still an indication that these things, this is still a lethal force. Uh, We're also starting to see, not related to politics, but a, a lot more personal testimonials of people. I mean, I think we've all run into a number of people now who have said, I got this. You don't want to get this. This was really bad. Here's what I went through. I was on a ventilator. I was hooked up. I spent five days in the ICU. I didn't know if I was going to make it. Even when people are not dying from this and, and, and we still have the skewed numbers towards the elderly, towards people with comorbidities, there's still a case to be made that, you know, if you're young and healthy, maybe this isn't going to affect you as much. But we're starting to see a lot of personal testimonials of even if you're young and healthy, you don't want to get this. You don't want to go through this. You, you don't want to be part of this. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about with so many votes cast, there's less opportunity for things to shift in the latter days. It, it, it does seem to me that because these campaigns have had so much overlap with this mask, anti-mask is this serious? Is this overblown? Do we put public health first? Do we open up the economy? That is not trending in the Republican direction right now, particularly in our part of the world, because of the the biology of this virus and the fact that as fall has turned into an early winter and people have moved indoors, uh, the transmission of this has gone up and has forced us all to kind of come to grips with, okay, Maybe I believe this is overblown. Maybe I believe we overreacted and shut the economy down too much. Maybe I believe that there was a, a more tact, tactical approach that could have been taken, but I still don't want to get this. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not on the team that's just going to go out and you know be, hey, there's, there's no problem here. I do think that that is a cognitive dissonance that Republicans, particularly Republicans that are soft on Trump, but fear the blue wave are actually struggling with right now. Yeah, what Trump is looking for, because the polls have not been to his favor in 
a few months, really. That hasn't changed. But what he's looking for is what he got last time, because Clinton led in 16 in most of the polls. And some of those polls were actually, like the national ones, were showing a pretty big lead at one point, even in October. But he's looking for that thing that's going to move people. You know, he got the Comey letter um, in the last 10 days of, of the 2016, the, where FBI Director Comey uh, dropped uh, the the emails. Uh, and let me just let, let me just insert here. I I know Democrats love to point to that and say that. Yeah, well, that, I'm not Comey letter, but uh, I'm not saying. But he he got something that <laughs> loosened up the electorate for him because you can clearly see how things changed for you know in the electorate after that. I'm not saying Clinton got what 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 happened and whether you think that those charges were merited or not, or whether you think that that email issue was as important or not important. I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm tired of that. But something's got to break his way. You know, something's got to break his way to change. And this is the difference, I think, because as an insurgent, which is what he was in 2016, I know we're going back to the presidential race and we're trying to talk about local races, but I really think it's so closely indexed up and down the ballot on the presidential race. Republicans want something to break their way that will get people on the fence uh, to say, and here's the other thing that's interesting. And I don't know what you think of this, Chuck. You know, we, last time we talked, we, um, Justice Coney Barrett had not yet been confirmed. And there was questions about whether that was appropriate or not. Well, she's been confirmed. And in a way I thought about this, like her being confirmed is probably, I mean, the Republicans are happy about that, but, but you take away that, like, uh-oh, if Biden gets in, he's going to get a Supreme Court pick right off the bat. And that's now not on the table. Biden comes in and the justices are all set and he might go four years and not get one. Or if he does get one, it's to replace. Well, I, I feel the Democrats you know? have, I feel like Biden himself has recognized that the biggest threat in that regard is to just tell people to shut up about court packing. Because, I mean, that's the, we're going to pack the court as soon as we're in. We're going to, you know, create all these yeah. new justices. And I, I think he's kind of tamped that down and said, you know, I'm not going to talk about that, period. Because you're right. In a sense, if you were a reluctant Trump voter who was, I want him to appoint judges, you won. You're done. Like, mm-hmm. there's no chance that he's going to appoint any more judges in the next term. Because unless something very unforeseen happens because they're all pretty young and going to be there more than the next four years. Yeah, other than uh, Souter, who... Would not retire during a Trump, you know, unless he... Unless he, something bad happened. Something bad happened, right. The reluctant Trump voter from 2016, the one who said, I don't like this guy, but I don't like Democrats, and I want conservative justices, and I want conservative policies, well, they got their tax cut, and the only way to change those tax cuts uh, is... For Democrats to have to raise them, which comes with a political price. And then they got they got to replace Scalia uh, with a conservative. They got to replace Kennedy, the swing justice, with a conservative. And now they got to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative. All very conservative, right off the pages of what a conservative justice is supposed to be, according to the folks who follow this stuff. They would love to get some more conservative justices in the next term. That, it, but it's all it, they they got the court that they want, and so if they don't like Trump's character, if that always was the problem with Trump, they're not as incentivized to. Uh, yeah, they may still vote for him, but some of them may say, you know, I'm going to either vote third party or I'm not going to vote on that race because I really disapprove of him, 
or or maybe a handful of them vote for Biden if they see him as a decent person and has good character and all that, or or they just want to make a change. You know, we're not talking big numbers. Most people do what they always do in party politics. But yeah, it, it changed that because I think, uh, and I almost wonder if McConnell was like saying, I, I'm not messing around. I'm, I'm going to get this confirmation vote and I'm going to put it in the bank because I don't know what I'm going to get out of the election. Maybe nothing. So I feel like we've hit on a term here, the, the, the reluctant Trump voter. And I, I do think that's an important demographic to tune into mm-hmm. because you have the feverish Trump voter. I mean, there, there's a 35%, Aaron, you know, 40% of the yeah. electorate that is like, I'm, I'm with Trump. There's another 40% who's like, I'm, I'm, if, if Trump said kittens and, and rainbows, I would hate kittens and rainbows, at least while he's talking. You know, there's, there's that group. In the middle there, there is this group. And I think that it, it is the reluctant Trump voter is a way to think of this. People who don't necessarily want to elect either the insider of Joe Biden, you know, someone who's been in the quarters of government for my entire life. I mean, I think he was first elected when I was four, kind of the definition of an insider, yet can't buy into four more years of what, what I've just come to call the craziness, like the chaos. It's chaos, um, yeah. The, the chaos, you know, I just, I, I want change. I want reform. I don't want to empower more elites, more insiders but I can't tie the wagon of my intellectual thoughts of, of my hopes for the future to crazy train. You know, I got, I gotta have something more than that. And, and I'm looking beyond this election, beyond the next election to actually the direction I would like to see the country go. And as long as Donald Trump is the face of that direction, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. I feel like that voter that really is going to be in terms of can Trump pull out a, a win in Ohio? Can he tr- pull out a win in Florida? Can he pull out a win in Pennsylvania or Michigan? It's going to be whether that voter shows up or not and who they vote for. I said before that I did not, I've already cast my ballot. I voted for the American Solidarity Party for president. I decided that over a year ago, I knew going into 2020 that I was not a Trump voter and I wanted to see something different. I know a lot of people who have made a very similar choice. Like I can't vote for Biden, I can't vote for the blue wave. It might be inevitable, but I also can't support Trump. With the ballots having been cast by such a large majority, I think these final days give very little room for people to actually come back from that or change their minds on that. And we can't discount the third party votes from 2016. There was there were a lot of third party votes. And in that case, many of them were people who wanted to vote against Trump as well. But, but couldn't stand Clinton. And, and I, I don't think Biden has the same negatives. I mean, I know, I know some people don't like him, but. I think that's true. I think the third know. party votes come more from Trump this time than mm-hmm. from, than from yeah. Biden. And I think that the other time around, it was different.